It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Warzer. It's deadline week for new legislation at the state capitol. We'll find out what's gotten done and what's still in the works. We'll also talk with the creators of a Minnesota-made podcast that pairs artists and poetry. Why? Well, we're going to find out. A statewide student walkout is planned today in the death of 26-year-old Khalil Azad, who was found dead in a Robbinsdale Lake last July. We'll get the details. And a memoir by award-winning Minnesota-based writer Kao Kalia Yang is premiering this Thursday as an opera. We'll talk to her about the experience. All that, and of course, we have the song of the day and the Minnesota Music Minute. Don't you go anywhere. It comes your way right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Train operator Norfolk Southern is releasing new requirements designed to immediately enhance the safety of its operations. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the blueprint comes in the aftermath of the massive derailment and chemical spill that devastated the community of East Palestine, Ohio last month. The preliminary findings of an investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board trace the derailment and the initial fire to an overheated axle on one of the train's tanker cars. In response, Norfolk Southern is proposing a new six-point plan to enhance safety measures. Much of it focuses on hot bearing detectors, which are installed on rail tracks and provide train crews with real-time warnings. The updated safety guidelines come just days before the CEO of Norfolk Southern is scheduled to testify before a Senate committee and after another train derailment yesterday for the company. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Transportation Department has established a resource to help families seeking to sit together on airline flights without paying extra fees. NPR's Kristen Wright has the details. DOT's Family Seating Dashboard makes it clear which airlines guarantee seats together for children 13 and younger and an accompanying adult at no extra cost if available. Airlines that comply with the DOT policy receive a green check mark. The government agency is pressing airlines to write the promise into its customer service plans and says so far Alaska Airlines, American and Frontier have agreed. NPR's Kristen Wright reporting. The FBI says four U.S. citizens are missing after unidentified gunmen opened fire on their vehicle in Matamoros, Mexico. Texas Public Radio's Mariana Fajro has the latest. In a news release, the FBI San Antonio Division says the individuals crossed into Matamoros, Mexico Friday from Brownsville, Texas in a white minivan with North Carolina license plates. Gunmen fired upon the vehicle after it first crossed the border, and all four individuals were taken from the vehicle. The U.S. consulate in Matamoros issued an alert to avoid the area after reports of the incident. The FBI San Antonio Division is working with federal partners and Mexican law enforcement agencies to investigate. The Mexican state of Tamaulipas is currently classified as a Level 4 Do Not Travel and the state's Department Travel Advisory for Mexico. I'm Marian Navarro in San Antonio. Russia is intensifying its military campaign to capture the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. After more than a year of war, Moscow is seeking a decisive win in this particular battle. So is Ukraine, whose forces have been fighting to hold on to every bit of its land. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 81 points. You're listening to NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. This is NPR. Around Minnesota right now, skies are cloudy, there's some snow and rain out there. At noon in downtown Duluth, it's raining in 34. There's snow at the Duluth Airport where it's 32. It's cloudy in 36 in Winona. And outside the historic Moorhead Dairy Queen, it's sunny and 7 above. I'm Kathy Warzer with Minnesota News Headlines. The student advocacy group Minnesota Teen Activists is planning a statewide walkout from class this afternoon in solidarity with the family of Khalil Azad. Azad, a young black man, was found dead in a lake at Robbinsdale last July, two days after the police attempted to pull him over for a traffic stop. 
Family members and activists have questioned the police account of what happened and questioned a medical examiner's report labeling the death as an accidental drowning. Robbinsdale police say they will release body camera footage related to the case this week. They've also requested the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension to conduct an independent review. We'll have much more on this story later in the hour. The state BCA is investigating after Stillwater police shot and killed a male suspect over the weekend. Police responded to multiple calls of shots fired at a Stillwater apartment complex Saturday afternoon. Police officers shot and killed the suspect in the parking lot after Police Chief Brian Mueller says the man started firing at officers. This was described to me as an active shooter situation. Many, many rounds fired before our arrival. Um, and definitely a scary situation for the first responders and those that are around. Like I said, there were hundreds and hundreds of families and children within very close proximity. And I'm talking a block, block and a half of this incident. The police chief says several people were injured. This is NPR News. Believe it or not, the Minnesota legislature is about to hit the halfway point for its work this year. And lawmakers have been moving a lot of legislation. One of our political reporters, Dana Ferguson, is here with us with an update of what's moving and what might come next. Hey, Dana, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Kathy. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. So uh, I am kind of surprised that they've nearly made it through the first half. What do state lawmakers have to show for it? Yeah, they have quite a bit to show for it. Legislators have approved and the governor has signed into law 12 bills so far, ranging from tax conformity to abortion access to restoring the right to vote to tens of thousands of people. And Governor Tim Walz is set to sign another bill into law tomorrow. Um, Lawmakers have also moved dozens of other bills through committees in these speedy first nine weeks, which means that those bills could come up for a vote in the House or the Senate at any time, too. You know, earlier in session, you and I talked about how they kind of hit the ground running and how DFLers wanted to get their priorities moving fast. Do they feel like they're living up to their goals? Yeah, they do. Um, House Speaker Melissa Hortman said she was trying to get closer to half of the work done in the first half of session so that the second half is a little bit lighter. And while it might not work out exactly that way, she said she's happy with what the DFL trifecta has accomplished so far. We are passing a lot of bills, we have a lot of new laws, and we are changing lives for the better. Hortman and Governor Tim Walls said they're following up on some of the top issues they heard from voters on the campaign trail, and they said they'll keep that aim in the last 10 weeks of session. And I am presuming that there are some people at the Capitol who are not very happy with the way the first half of session has gone so far. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, Republicans at the Capitol have been frustrated about the agenda and said that what lawmakers have done so far is out of step with what Minnesotans want. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Mark Johnson, a Republican from East Grand Forks, put it this way. You know, what the Democrats have been focused on lately is is making sure that felons can vote. And, uh, you know, there's a number of social type issues that we didn't hear at the door. So we're trying to address Minnesota's problems that they are looking at right now. The first committee deadline is coming up on Friday. And for folks who are not sure what that means, can you explain that? Yeah, that means that committees are going to be working around the clock to hear all the bills that DFL leaders view as priorities. It's not an end-all, be-all deadline, but Friday marks the last day that bills can move through the first committee in the House that they came from. So it acts as a filter for what's going to keep moving forward this year and what will fall away or we'll have to wait until next year. There are some pretty big bills moving through the legislature right now. I'm thinking about um, the legalization of marijuana, uh, paid family leave. Could either of those end up getting pushed to next session? Yeah, they could if it takes too long to iron out the details of a framework for either of them. But DFL leaders have said they feel confident that they can pass those along with a budget, a bonding bill, and dozens of other bills before they wrap up in May. That's a lot of work. Okay, Uh, speaking of the bonding bill, uh, it looks like the House is going to take up one today, right? Yes, that is right. Leaders in the House have said they are optimistic that they can have a deal together today um, that can appease enough members to hit the three-fifths threshold in that chamber to pass it. But we'll see if that actually materializes this afternoon. 
It would also have to pick up support in the Senate. And as recently as Friday, Republican leaders said they wanted to see a tax bill move if they were going to support a bonding bill. Hmm. Okay, so it looks like the second half of the session is going to have plenty of news to keep you busy. I'd say you're right, Kathy. (laughs) Well, good luck. Dana Ferguson, thank you. Thanks. Have a great day. Of course, Dana is one of our political reporters, and she mentioned the bonding bill that will be voted on this afternoon in the state house. Republican leaders of the Minnesota Senate said earlier today they will block the bonding bill in their chamber unless DFL leaders put forward a tax cut bill first. Republicans in the House have said they will support that package, but Senate Republican Minority Leader Mark Johnson said GOP senators are not ready to support it. We just want them to know that that, that bill is going to be dead on arrival because we believe that, that we need to see some tax cuts tied to that. Want to follow news at the legislature? Just go to nprnews.org and click on politics. Another story we're following. A group of Minnesota students is planning a walkout in Minneapolis later today to call for an investigation into the circumstances surrounding the death of Khalil Azad. He was a young black man who was found dead in Crystal Lake in July, two days after Robbinsdale police attempted to pull him over for a traffic stop. Here to tell us more about the walkout is education reporter Elizabeth Shockman. Hey, Elizabeth. Hi, Kathy. Say, before we talk about this walkout, can you tell us more about Khalil Azad and the Robbinsdale Police Department? Sure. This is something our colleagues here at NPR have done some reporting on. So Khalil Azad was a 26-year-old man who was found dead in Crystal Lake in July last year. So you said two days after Robbinsdale Police attempted to pull him over for a traffic stop. The Robbinsdale Police Department is planning to release body camera footage this week of the interaction that they had with Azad. The police department has also requested the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension conduct an independent review of the case. I know there was a medical examiner's report. What do we know about how Azad died? That's right. We have some reports both from the uh, Robbinsdale Police Department and the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office on this. So Robbinsdale Police said that they attempted to pull Azad over on July 3rd of last year, but he fled the scene after his car hit a tree around one in the morning. Uh, After that, police, including a K-9 unit and a state patrol helicopter, searched for Azad for about 30 minutes, but they did not find him until July 5th when they say they were dispatched to reports of an unknown body in Crystal Lake. In October, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office declared the cause of death as freshwater drowning. Okay, that was back in July. How does the walkout this afternoon come into all of this? So Azad's family are questioning the circumstances of his death after seeing graphic photos in the autopsy report. Last Monday, they held a press conference to demand an independent investigation and the release of body camera footage. Now, the Minnesota teen activist group is getting behind those requests and planning a walkout. Now, we've talked to them in the past about other issues. Uh, tell us more about this group. They've, they've led school walkouts before. That's right. So as we said, Minnesota teen activists, this is a group that is led by high school students and recent graduates. They are focused on racial justice issues, and they've been involved in various forms of activism since 2020 that we've covered. They've staged several walkouts before, including a statewide walkout to protest the police killing of Dante Wright in 2021, and in 2022, a protest against gun violence following the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas. They've also used their social media platform to bring attention to racist incidents in Minnesota K-12 schools. So what is Minnesota teen activists demanding today? They want to see footage from the police chase released. So body camera, dash camera, traffic like um, footage, helicopter footage. They're also asking for an independent investigation into all agencies involved in this incident. And they're also calling for an independent investigation into the policies and practices of the Hennepin County Medical Examiner's Office. Any other groups that have raised concerns about Azad's death? Some of the images from the autopsy report have been circulating on social media and drawing strong reactions. Trahern Cruz, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Minnesota, has questioned the autopsy and the police report. Say, uh, there were reports that Khalil Azad was a pretty good swimmer. Has that come into this at all? That's right. So that is um, some of the reasons that people are bringing questions about the uh, cause of death and the police and autopsy reports involved in this matter. All right. Are you going to go to the walkout today? 
Yes, we will be there to cover the walkout. In the past, these sorts of events have drawn hundreds of young students. It's my understanding that the Minnesota Teen Activist Group has been working hard to, to prepare for the event. They will be marching through central Minneapolis to the Hennepin Government Center early this afternoon. All right. Elizabeth, thank you so much. You're welcome. That's NPR News reporter Elizabeth Schockman. Students with Minnesota teen activists are gathering at 1.30 this afternoon to call for an investigation into the death of Khalil Azad. This is our Minnesota Music Minute. It's a song by... This, it's a song called Deja Vu by L.A. Bruckner. He's an artist and producer from North Minneapolis and co-host of Sound Field, a PBS YouTube series. He's performing at the Dakota tonight at 7 p.m. with his band, Big Homie. here on Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Worzer. Even if you're not a fan of poetry, there's a podcast out there about poetry that might capture your interest. It's called Interesting People Reading Poetry. It's a podcast created by two Minnesota brothers, Brendan and Andrew Sturmer. They're with us right now to talk poetry and podcasting. Hey, you guys, how are you doing? Hey, Kathy, it's great to be here. Thank you doing for well. joining Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Brendan and Andrew. Now, you have been doing this podcast since uh, 2016, I believe. Brendan, how did it start? Well, it started about a year before then. Um, when I was a student at the University of Minnesota Morris, I had a radio show on campus called the Motown Poetry Hour, where I would sort of curate a mix of hip-hop tracks and poetry selections on a given theme. Um, so that was sort of my first experiment in um, poetry and radio, and then it sort of evolved into uh, interesting people reading poetry over the years after conversations with Andy about what a podcast might look like. And by the way, thank you for being in student radio. We, we appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely. It was a blast. Um, Andrew, or Andy, uh, what did you think when Brendan said, hey, I got this idea? Well, I was really excited um, because my background's as a musician, but I also at the time was getting really interested in audio production and um, I had actually applied to be an intern at a number of podcasts and, um, you know, didn't hear a positive response. So when Brendan offered the chance, I was really excited to, to dig in and, and, you know, start something of our own. I want folks to listen to a little bit of your podcast to get a feel for how it sounds and, and what you're making. My name is Makoto Fujimura. I am an artist. This is part of Four Quartets by T.S. Eliot. Time past and time future allow but a little consciousness. To be conscious is not to be in time, but only in time can the moment in the rose garden, the moment in the arbor where the rain beat, the moment in the drafty church at Smokefall be remembered, involve with past and future. Only through time, time is conquered. That is visual artist Makoto Fujimura reading Four Quarters by T.S. Eliot. Say, uh, Brendan, why did you choose Mr. Fujimura and that poem? And the music, for that matter. Um, well, we actually, our guests are encouraged to choose their favorite poems, so we don't choose any of the poems that appear on the podcast. We reach out to artists that we admire. And our only rule for guest selection is that no poets are allowed on the podcast because we're very interested in hearing how luminaries from diverse disciplines can teach us to approach poems in new ways. So I was familiar with 
um, Makoto Fujimura as an incredible painter. And I just sent him an email asking if he would be willing to read and talk about his favorite poem. And um, Andy can share a little bit more about how we developed the score for that episode. Go ahead, Andy. Sure. So the music um, was developed. The inspiration was um, through the interview and through some of the research we did, we learned that um, Elliot had been influenced by some of Beethoven's string quartets in um, when he was writing the poem and that um, Makoto also had a, a connection to one of those quartets um, as he was, you know, coming to love this poem. And so we kind of used that as inspiration and I ended up sampling one of these, a couple lines from the quartet and sort of stretching and warping and otherwise mangling that and then layering some other synths on top of that. So it's sort of this idea of the inspiration behind the poem is sort of present there uh, in the background. Did he say why he chose that poem specifically? There's always a story behind something. He did, yeah. In every episode, we after the the guest reads the poem for the first time, we sort of uh, ask them questions about um, how they first encountered the poem. And in Mr. Fujimura's case, he first came to read the poem after 9-11. His studio was um, close to ground zero and he was not able to access his studio. And he told us a story of um, reading that poem aloud every time he got onto the subway in New York City in the days and months following 9-11. And it was a, a great source of comfort for him. Now, you have, this is interesting people reading poetry. What's the definition of an interesting person? What makes someone interesting, Brendan? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think I think all people are interesting. Um, so, yeah, I, I do have a problem with our title on that respect. But particularly, we're interested in, um, like I said, artists um, who are not themselves poets. That's very important to us. Um, and we've interviewed everybody on the show from journalists to painters, to uh, a biblical translator, to um, rock stars. Um, so sort of occupational diversity is very important to the concept of the show. And in general, we're just interested in um, people who are sort of like leaders in their field, um, super leading minds and, um, and how they might bring new light to poems uh, that, that poets might read differently. Did how they I... can use the wit. Ah. I, did, I see. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Did I hear uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, one of your, was she reading a book? Yeah. 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 She was one of our, our very first guests and she read uh, a poem and she was incredible. I'd really encourage people to seek out that episode. Do you write poetry yourself? I do. Yes. I, I read and write poetry every day. And how did you b both get into not only you, Brendan, with the poetry, but Andy with the music. How did that happen for you both? So I, think... I um, have a background in, I've always loved music and um, was trained mainly as a, a drummer and studied jazz um, drum set in college and eventually got into um, jazz composition and arranging, uh, which led to um, other types of music composition and eventually music production and audio production. And Brendan? So that's been kind of my path. Oh, wow. That's quite a path. Brendan? How did we? Get, how did I get interested in poetry? Yeah. Um, I guess I would trace that back to growing up in Montevideo, Minnesota. We had a great artist in residence program in the elementary schools. Um, and in fourth grade, we had a poet by the name of Florence Dacey uh, come to my classroom. And I've been writing poetry ever since. Wow. Say, I understand that you have a haiku hotline, which I adore. This is a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about it. Yeah. At the end of every every episode, we feature one listener poem. So we encourage listeners to call the haiku hotline. And basically, it doesn't, we encourage people to submit haikus, but it can really be any short poem or fragment. Um, and so they leave us poems in our voicemail inbox, and then we, we select one to play at the end of every episode. I love that. What have you run into? <laughs> I bet you've got some really great ideas and really great entries. Yeah. Um, gosh, we used to have like a different prompt that we would send out on social media to try to get um, specific poems. But the one that's coming to mind most recently um, in our last episode we put out, I was sort of just sorting through our voicemail inbox and came across a poem that was submitted by a nurse at Regent's Hospital. Um, she said, I'm in my break room and I just witnessed this um, really troubling uh, encounter, somebody really struggling 
uh, medically and she wrote a poem about it and decided to call us and um, it's a really beautiful reflection. See, so what do you think about why why does this podcast touch people? What is it about the words and the music that resonate with listeners? I think it's a really important experience for people to to um, to experience poetry as a sensual and as a oral art form. Um, very often, people's uh, people's experience of poetry is on the page, which is obviously a, a great way to experience it. But it's something completely different to to hear a poem read aloud and then to have uh, somebody share uh, on a personal level and incorporating in memories and experiences like what the poem means to them. I think it it creates a doorway into the poem for people who otherwise might be um, scared or find the text difficult. Andy, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with everything Brendan said. I also think um, that people are drawn to it and it resonates with them because it's um, a different way to experience poetry that's outside of a academic context, you know, where a lot of people may first encounter poetry in high school English class, sort of trying to understand it and analyze it. And we're trying to sort of remove that context and um, present it more as an experience. Um, it's not, uh, our guests aren't usually analyzing the meaning of the, the poem and digging into certain words and what they mean and the phrasing so much as they're sharing their personal connection with it. And I think that uh, connects with people. What a beautiful, creative thing. I wish you both well. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you, Kathy. Brendan and Andy Sturmer are the creators of Interesting People Reading Poetry. You can hear their podcast at interestingpeoplereadingpoetry.com. Programming is supported by Little Moments Count, a community movement to raise awareness and support parents based on what is known about brain development in the first 1,000 days of life. More at littlemomentscount.org. Let's get a news update right now from John Wanamaker. John? Kathy, regular users of Twitter may have noticed some glitches in the app today. The company said today that it had made some internal changes that had, quote, unintended, unintended consequences. Meanwhile, researchers have uncovered a network of tens of thousands of fake Twitter accounts created to support former President Donald Trump and attack his critics and potential rivals. Those targeted by the bot network include a Republican candidate for president, Nikki Haley, and potential Trump rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The network was discovered by an Israeli tech firm, Syabra, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, which shared its findings with the Associated Press. The network's creator remains unknown. The FBI says four U.S. citizens have been kidnapped after gunmen opened fire on their vehicle in the northern Mexico border city of Matamoros. The four had entered Matamoros across from Brownsville, Texas on Friday. They were traveling in a white minivan with North Carolina license plate. The FBI San Antonio Division said that the vehicle came under fire shortly after it entered Mexico. The agency is offering a $50,000 reward for the return of the victims and the arrest of the culprits. The U.S. consulate issued an alert about the dangers in the area on Friday. Authorities in Atlanta say 35 people have been detained after a violent protest erupted at the site of a new police training center. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports protesters dressed in all black threw large rocks, bricks, Molotov cocktails, and fireworks at police officers at that construction site late yesterday. Atlanta Police Chief Darren Sheerbaum says several pieces of construction equipment were set on fire, and many of those who were arrested were from outside Atlanta. The government is rolling out a new dashboard that lets travelers see which airlines let families with young children sit together on flights at no extra cost. The Transportation Department unveiled the online feature today. The department is trying to pressure airlines to adopt family-friendly policies. In the meantime, the administration is working on new regulations to prevent airlines from separating family if seats are available. On Wall Street right now, stocks up across the board. The Dow up about two-tenths of one percent, the S&P up four-tenths, and the Nasdaq up nearly one-half of one percent. This is NPR News. Thank you, John. It's 1230. When the pandemic disrupted food supply chains back in 2020, many folks scrambled to buy direct from farmers. That local food movement is still growing. Dan Gunderson has more on a new initiative aimed at boosting state support for f small farmers and local food networks. Sazi Calhoun works in the film industry, so she was sidelined when COVID-19 shut down film production. In May of 2020, from her home in Bethel in the North Metro, she decided to start a Facebook group with the goal of connecting farmers and consumers. I started it just because of the need that I was seeing out in the world during COVID-19. I remember I sat there with my finger on the button and I thought, is this 
really silly? Am I going to be a group of one person? But in a case of right place, right time, Farm Direct Minnesota took off, and it's still growing nearly three years later. It has about 75,000 members, and Calhoun says it still attracts about 900 new members a month. She thinks the marketing model has staying power. I do think there's sustainability. I think there is going to be sustainability as long as people want fresh food and, and um, see the value in that. And I don't think they're going to stop seeing that value. Christina Traeger was among the first farmers to join the Farm Direct Facebook group, offering a quarter or a half side of beef for sale. It brought us a connection together with people who needed that quarter or half because their freezer was empty. Traeger Farms about 20 miles west of St. Cloud. She had been selling directly to consumers for about a decade through farmer's markets, her own Facebook page, and a website. Joining the new group expanded her marketing reach and the marketing challenges. You know, you get the people who are you know, we'll come on there and say, well, I can get it for three ninety nine at Walmart. But Traeger says for every negative interaction, there are 20 positive responses. You know, they saw my post on Farm Direct and they came to the market and came to the farm and picked stuff up and messaged me the next day and said that was the best meat they've ever had. You know, you see both ends of the spectrum on that. Traeger believes the future of her farm is in direct marketing, despite the challenges of running a farm and a direct market business. She and other small farmers might get more support in the future. A new initiative at the Minnesota Department of Agriculture is taking a deeper look at the needs of small farmers and local food systems. We've never collected data like this before. We're already really excited to be learning from it. Ag Department Regional Marketing Specialist Kate Siebold says they've learned that many small farmers are not included in the federal census of agriculture, leaving a void in the knowledge about local food systems. For the past two years, the state Ag Department has been building relationships with small farmers and BIPOC communities to gather data and ideas about local food networks. Siebold says it's clear there is enough interest and economic benefit to support a more strategic approach to local food systems in the state. Kathy Zeman operates an organic farm near Nurstrand in southern Minnesota. She's also executive director of the Minnesota Farmers Market Association. We just reached 362 farmers markets. It's the highest number of farmers markets we've ever recorded in the state of Minnesota. Zeman says there are grassroots efforts all across the state, with more than a dozen food hubs where farmers collaborate to fill online customer orders for a range of products. She says the shift to locally grown food has momentum, but needs public support for infrastructure. Community commercial kitchens, community cold storage, and community food hubs all require capital that many small farmers don't have. State investment in that infrastructure is likely to be one of the recommendations when the final report on supporting local and regional food markets is completed later this year. Dan Gunderson, NPR News, Moorhead. As you heard at the top of the show, this is the week that bills need to get through their first hearing in a committee to be considered alive this session. The state legislature is considering a bill that would make the state a safe haven for kids and teens seeking gender-affirming health care. What exactly does that bill do? NPR News reporters Nicole Kai and digital producer Sam Struces have been reporting on the bill. They're here to help explain it. Nicole and Sam, thanks. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for having us. Let's start with the phrase gender-affirming health care. Nicole, what does that mean in this case? So gender-affirming health care is specialized health care for trans and gender youth. Some of the parents I spoke to with trans kids um, said it's similar to a routine pediatric visit most kids go to every year. The biggest difference is the care is given by experts in the medical field who have worked with trans and gender-diverse youth. Um, and some of the questions that they'll be asked during those visits is um, about their gender identity, and they'll kind of keep track of their physical and emotional developments as a child. Um, common misconception about gender-affirming care is that it's only surgery or medication. Dr. Angela K. Gepford, who's the medical director of Children's Minnesota's Gender Health Program, said it's pretty rare to see anyone under the age of 18 undergo surgical procedures and that surgeries are not a part of the care um, that 
the gender health program at Children's Minnesota provides. Um, it's really centered on supporting families with trans kids and connecting them with resources, with affirming their identity, navigating school and community community activities, and um, also connect them with mental health counseling. So medication only comes in when a child has grown to the age of puberty, typically ages 12 to 16, and that comes after years of building trust with their pediatrician or um, having many ongoing conversations with their doctor, maybe a counselor, and family later down the road um, on hormone treatments. Um, and I'm wondering here, Nicole, where can young people currently access this type of care? Gender-affirming care is provided at any hospital that runs a gender clinic or program. So Children's Minnesota is one. A few more are Hennepin County Medical Center, um, Park Nicolette Gender Services Clinic, mm-hmm. and M Health Fairview. In the context of gender-affirming care access in the country, Minnesota is one of the few states in the Midwest that is openly welcoming toward the trans community and is one of the states um, many are fleeing to for gender-affirming care. If you look at a map of the U.S., there is a big kind of hole in the middle of the country and along the south where you would have to drive three to six hours to access clinic um, or some gender-affirming care services. So I know that you talked to a number of parents of children who are receiving gender-affirming care. What did they have to say to you? Yeah, um, some of the parents I spoke to had to switch over from their primary pediatrician to look for expertise in gender-affirming care. For how and Gretchen Wynn, who have a six-year-old trans daughter, Asher, they've been taking her to Children's Minnesota's gender clinic for about two years. Those are annual visits, so they've been just a few, but um, it's mostly questions for their daughter, Asher, about how she's feeling and thinking, checking in on where she is. The social affirmation aspect for the wins was a big thing for them, too. Um, they also had a lot of questions about how to talk to Asher about her transgender identity, what language to use, what to do um, when they got pushback, and when is the appropriate age to talk to her about hormone blockers. How, when testified in support of this bill to make Minnesota a, quote, trans refuge state, here's a clip from his testimony. At three, she was not sleeping very well. She was waking up every single night. It was a lot more than just a toddler waking up. And one day I picked her up from daycare, and all the teachers had said, Asher told us that she's a she. And I said to these wonderful daycare people who had never had a trans kid before at a pretty religious place, so what'd you do? And they said, we called her a her. And I said, great. Oh my God, great. And Ashford comes around the corner and I said, hey, there's my beautiful daughter. And I, 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 I think there are a few things in this world that are I'll remember for my whole life, and and that is one of them. The smile on her face, the look of affirmation, the confidence she had to tell her teachers who had known her since diapers that she was a she, that her father said, there's my beautiful daughter. That's what Minnesota should be. That's who we are. So what has the medical community, Nicole, said about this bill? The medical community has been in support of access to gender-affirming care. Um, The Minnesota Department of Health did a survey last year of students in eighth grade and higher. Um, About 10% of those students identified as non-cisgender, which includes transgender, gender-fluid, non-binary, and two-spirit identities. Out of that 10%, 65% reported long-term mental health, emotional, and behavioral issues. Um, Doctors like Dr. Gepford say people do better when they have access to this care. They have a better sense of self, have less depression, anxiety, and suicidality symptoms. The American Medical Association and Children's Hospital Association has also been 
in support of access to gender-affirming care. They've cited data that indicates trans and gender-diverse youth are at higher risk to anxiety, depression, and suicidality symptoms because of limited or no access to gender-affirming care. All right. That's Nicole Kai, one of our reporters. Sam Struces is a digital producer here. I want to bring you in, Sam. I don't mean to ignore you there. Um, what's the environment around this kind of care like in other states? Can you can you kind of crystallize that for us? Yeah. So like Nicole was saying, there definitely is a hole when it comes to care. So states around Minnesota are beginning to enact laws trying to restrict gender affirming care. So in February, the North Dakota House passed a bill that would criminalize health providers if they provided this type of care to minors. This could be anything from hormones to gender-affirming conversations like Dr. Gepford mentioned. And then the South Dakota governor also enacted a similar law banning all gender-affirming care for minors. And then nationwide, um, recently Florida and Mississippi have been banning gender-affirming care. And there's about 80 bills related to gender-affirming care across the country, and about 20 states are likely to ban it in the upcoming months. Okay, so what would this bill change if the legislature passes it? So in simple terms, the bill would protect minors and their parents who are coming from other states to Minnesota to seek gender-affirming care. So we're specifically thinking of people in the Dakotas. So they could come to Minnesota, access gender-affirming care, and be protected from the laws that govern their home states. So, for example, the bill says people would not be arrested or extradited from Minnesota for giving or receiving gender-affirming health care, even though it may be considered a crime in their home state. And essentially, parents and providers would not get in trouble. And Minnesota would also become the fourth state to be this trans refugee state, joining Connecticut, New York, and California. And the bill would make Minnesota a refugee refugee state by modifying the existing law about court jurisdiction involving children. So it would be giving the courts temporary emergency jurisdiction if a child is here because they have been unable to get gender-affirming health care somewhere else. But there has also been some criticism from Republicans, several Minnesota legislators and organizations have questioned the impact of minors using hormone blockers or other types of cross-sex hormones, even though the bill itself does not attempt to legislate any of that. Um, Representative Peggy Scott said that the bill is, quote, an assault on parental rights. And Representative Finke says that the custody provisions allow temporary jurisdiction for the custody cases to be heard in Minnesota, but it does not change how they would be heard. Okay. So I mentioned that, of course, the first committee deadline is coming up. This is this bill is still moving through the legislature. Is that right? Yep. So the bill is alive and moving through the leg right now. Um, it's awaiting a debate on the House floor. And since Democrats control Minnesota government right now, it's more likely to succeed than it has been in recent years. All right. We'll see what happens. Sam Strusis and Nicole Kai, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Support comes from the Women's Foundation of Minnesota. This Women's History Month, the Women's Foundation is celebrating 40 years of funding transformative futures for Minnesota's women, girls, and gender-expansive people. Join a culture of generosity at wfmn.org. Support comes from Visit Brainerd, where you can explore Minnesota and make memories at one of three indoor water parks, indoor laser tag and jump park, and a wide variety of shopping, food, and fun. More information at visitbrainerd.com. It's been said that writing an opera is a composer's ultimate challenge. What if you're a celebrated author? I'd venture to guess that writing the text for an opera is also a big job. In a few days, St. Paul writer Kao Kalia Yang will see her family's story put to music and on stage performed by the Minnesota Opera. In 2016, she wrote The Song Poet, A Memoir of My Father. It tells the story of Kalia's family and her poet father as war drives them from the mountains of Laos into a Thai refugee camp and ultimately to this country as news, as newcomers. Thursday, that story will have its debut at the Minnesota Opera in English and Hmong. Kalia joins us right now to talk about it. I am so happy to talk with you again, Kalia. How have you been? I've been good. Thank you so much for having me, Kathy. Thanks for being here. I recall talking to you about the song Poet when the book first came out, and your dad kind of laughed at you when you suggested you wanted to write about him. He has such a good story. How might you describe what sparked the song Poet, the book? The song Poet was my, I think I see it as an, it was an opportunity for me to get my father to, to lift his spirits a little bit. My dad had just lost his job, along with 14 other Hmong co-workers. 
and he would get dressed for work but have nowhere to go. And so one day I said, Daddy, how did you become a song poet in the Hmong tradition? And my father said to me, after my father died, my mother had nine children to feed. She took to the mountains and the fields to find food for us. I used to go to the houses of neighbors and friends to listen for the beautiful things that they had to say to each other. One day, the words came out on a sigh, and a song was born. And I said, Daddy, that's so beautiful. Maybe that is the beginning of my next book. And he said, maybe it's the ending. And then he looked at me, and he said, nobody wants to read a book about a man with rough hands. We live in a world where presidents write books about themselves. Mm. Oh, no. he's He, of course, he's such a humble man. Um, and for folks who are not familiar with the role of a song poet in Hmong culture, how do you explain that? A song poet documents ex- common experiences, personal tragedies, and sings them to a bigger world. A song poet must have a beautiful voice, an incredibly um, poetic and agile mind. Um, songs are not written, they are remembered. And the song poet sings so that others can remember, so that communities can grieve together. When your dad sings, do other Hmong people know that he lived in Laos? Is it is it can he can they determine where he lived because of his his, his words? Yes, because it's regional. My father is very much the Hmong of Sinkwang Laos. The white Hmong, when he sings, the style of his singing will peg will peg him immediately. Ah. Now, you are making some history. This is the first Hmong story adopted, adapted, I should say, as an opera, and you are the librettist. How did that happen? Minnesota Opera's Jamie Andrews, who's no longer with them, but Jamie Andrews read the song Poet and emailed me one day and said, would you like to meet? And in that meeting, Jamie said, the song Poet is the stuff of operas. Would you be interested? And I said, of course. In the beginning, I was not the librettist on the project, and I didn't think I would be. I can barely sing, Kathy. In <laughs> um, the sweet words of my father, my voice can be a little bothersome. <laughs> <laughs> so I never saw myself as a librettist. Opera as a form you know, is now one of the most um, accessible forms, especially for first-generation refugee families living in poverty. And so I, um, I was astounded. But when the... Well, the accomplished librettist couldn't quite do justice to the work. I knew that I had to step up. I knew that there was an opportunity. And I knew that if I had an opportunity to learn, then maybe I could do what I'd done in the song poet, the book. And so I took that opportunity to learn. I could only imagine that it was almost like drinking from a fire hose. You know, there's just so much yes. to learn. Yes. So very much to learn, but also this promise glimmering at the end. If I could do this, what could it mean to some other child out there who comes from perhaps a similar background, who dreams of such places in the world, such possibilities? And that has always been the reason why I've done, why I've become in so many ways. And so that spark drew me. Did your dad have a role in the production? Did he have an opportunity with his background to work with, say, you and the composer? Yes, because my father is is a singer. And so I, I have Hmong lines in the, in the libretto, and my father had to set them. He had to sing them in so many ways. So Jocelyn, Jocelyn Hagen, the composer, could set them and notate them for the musicians on the project. So my father actually has um, credit on the score as well. Oh, nice. Was it emotional when you first heard the songs? I went to the workshop. It was my birthday, December, and it was the first time I heard the songs from the performers. It was incredibly moving. I could feel my heart heating up and then the liquid, of course, falling. Oh. What about casting? Did you have an opportunity to meet with the cast? I, I have, and I sat through auditions um, for, I think, three of the nights. It was incredibly powerful for me to see, especially so you have like world singers from around the world. Because there aren't that many opera roles, wholesome, accurate, truthful, dignified opera roles for Asian-American singers and Asian singers, we drew, we drew, drew talent from around the world. But walking into one of the auditions, and I remember on the first day, there was a 15-year-old Hmong boy. 
walking in in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. And my heart started hammering, but it was incredibly courageous. He took one look at us and he opened his mouth and he did what he came to do. And so it was incredibly powerful as a first experience, but also as an experience of so many talented people from around the world. And then these young people. Oh, Kalia, I'm so happy that you had the opportunity to do this. Um, I'm hoping that your mom and dad, of course, uh, will be in the audience, you know, for the opening and uh, in, in probably to see a number of the different performances. Did they see, have they seen any rehearsals? They have not. Okay. So March 23rd, the whole family will go and they wanted to go with the grandchildren. So they will be there with with their grandkids and all of them will see an opera for the first time. And Kathy, I can't believe that the first opera they see will be a Molar opera, that it will be the song poet. That's so important. It is. My mom says, what if I cry? And I tell her, it's okay if you cry and it's okay if you don't. Did I hear this right, Kalia, that the the uh, production's been sold out even well, well before, you know, uh, like months and months ago? Yes, I understand that it is the first Minnesota Opera main stage production to have sold out six months before its premiere date. Wow. Wow. That's got to tell you something. I mean, the Hmong community must be just so excited about this. I believe we are, but it's also, of course, because it's one of the first, there are, there's some apprehension. How is it going to go? How, how is this thing going to come together? But I, I, we're in good hands. Rick Shiomi is directing. Jocelyn Hagen is so talented. The whole team, the cast. Oh, this is the biggest artistic team that I've been a part of. And everybody is such a, a professional. I would love to see how you, what your mom and dad say. I, can you, I, sitting in the audience, and, I'm, and if I'm you, I'm probably giving my dad sidelong glances to see what he's, how his reactions are, you know? I wonder your, if your heart will be pounding. Oh, I, I think about the launch of the song poet, the book. I could not look in my father's direction because every time I did, I, my own tears would start falling. Oh. I have a feeling it'll be a similar night. I bet it will be. I wish you all the best, as always, Kalia. You're just so amazing. And, and best of luck with this. Thank you so much, Kathy. I'm excited for audiences to see this thing that's been in the works for five years. Wow. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Kao Kalia Yang is the author of the song Poet, a memoir of my father. It'll be premiering at the Minnesota Opera this Thursday, March the 9th. You can find Kalia at her website, by the way, kaokaliayang.com. She's one of my favorites. And thank you for listening to Minnesota Now today here on Minnesota Public Radio. Support for Minnesota Now comes from True Stone Financial Credit Union, dedicated to giving back to the community since 1939. Full-service banking is available at 23 locations and online at truestone.org. True Stone is an equal housing opportunity lender insured by NCUA. Hey, Joseph, I just saw your message on Twitter. You want to know why we're playing full Billy Joel songs right now? Hey, it's part of the deal here at Minnesota Now. We get to play full songs. We have DJs come in because, of course, my choice of music is horrible. We ask the DJs to play a song for us. It's called Song of the Day. That Joe is what it's all about here in the program. This is NPR News 91.1 KNOW Minneapolis, St. Paul. Flurries right now, 34 degrees in the Twin Cities. 34, high today, pretty much where we are. Tomorrow, cloudy skies, upper 30s, and then the other shoe drops on Wednesday with snow Wednesday afternoon all the way through Friday.